Colorado's top job is open, and we conducted job interviews with the leading candidates because you're about to hire the state's next governor. I'm Ryan Warner, and from CPR News, this is Who's Gonna Govern? On this episode of the podcast, my conversation with Democrat Jared Polis, recorded September 21st. Polis is currently in Congress, lives in Boulder, and you'll notice we stop tape to add some perspective when Polis makes a claim about his opponent, Republican Walker Stapleton. So to Jared Polis, on this year's ballot, there are some hefty tax and spending measures for schools and roads statewide. And I wanted to know where he stands on them. Let's start with the two transportation questions. One would raise the state sales tax and includes transit. Another would focus solely on roads and relies on bonding, essentially borrowing, to pay for that. First of all, we have to be able to make the investments we need to build out a 21st century infrastructure with a growing state. We have to look at the cost of doing nothing. And I think the average Coloradan spends about $600 a year being stuck in traffic and additional wear and tear and lost productivity. There are two measures. One is very harmful. Uh, the other is a way of doing things that um, is not necessarily one that you know I would write if I was writing it. The, the dangerous one would be bonding without new revenue. It would put the state in debt without any additional revenue to pay for it and crowd out everything we want to accomplish in schools. Uh, the cost of college would go up. Uh, healthcare rates would likely go up and it would drain our classrooms of money. So if you're going to bond, it's important that you have what's called the dedicated revenue source. You oppose fix our damn roads is the bonding proposal. Uh, their words, not mine. And are you taking a position? Will you take one with me on the tax increase? Yeah, it's not it's not what I would do. I think that particular vehicle is a is a sales tax increase. It's not something that I personally support. You will not vote for it. I haven't personally supported it or endorsed it. I'm open to a wide variety of ways of paying for infrastructure. If it gets done, uh, then we will uh, enact it as efficiently as possible. If it fails, uh, then we'll work with Republicans and Democrats in the business community on on better finance mechanisms. There is also on the ballot uh, a tax increase for schools using a different mechanism, not the sales tax. What do you think of it? Well, that one is actually a constitutional amendment. And in many ways, our constitution is already extremely cluttered with fiscal provisions. There's Amendment 23, there's the Gallagher Amendment, there's Tabor. I've long been on the side of trying to simplify and get many of these fiscal provisions uh, out of our state constitution so that our state can be more governable, regardless of whether Democrats or Republicans are in charge. It really ties the hands of our legislature and the governor. That is to say, it sounds like you would vote against that as well. If it passes, uh, we will use that money as efficiently as possible. If it doesn't, uh, we will approach things in a way to try to simplify uh, our state constitution and and decades of underinvestment in our public schools. And of course, fulfill uh, my goal of making sure that every child has access to preschool and kindergarten across the state, which would save uh, young families so much money on daycare. So not a, not a ringing endorsement, but not an outright. Well, Don't you know, you're, you're asking about ballot initiatives. Um, my focus is on what I can do a, as governor. Our focus is preschool and kindergarten. We have uh, finance mechanisms like social impact bonds, uh, like the pay for success program in Westminster that all has already achieved universal kindergarten and at least half day preschool for all their kids for free. We can fund it out of future savings to the system. Uh, certainly, we'll have to see what the voters do in terms of setting the tone for the next administration. 
But as a candidate for governor, I'm really focused on what we could accomplish working with the state legislature and with the executive authority of the governor. If the education measure doesn't succeed, statewide tax increases have not fared well in recent Colorado history. What do you suggest as revenue streams? Why don't we start with education and then move to transportation. So a uh, very big difference between uh, Walker Stapleton and myself on funding education. Uh, his marquee proposals would actually take money out of our public schools. One of them is creating private savings accounts to pay for tutors or piano on the side. Uh, again, that would forego revenue that would otherwise go to our schools. The other would be a sales tax holiday for uh, notebooks and school supplies, also taking money out of our schools. Okay, let's pause here for a second. It's true the Republican candidate wants a sales tax holiday for school supplies, which indirectly could reduce tax revenues, but not expressly take money out of public schools. And Polis' opponent does want tax-free education savings accounts. That could reduce some revenue for government, but once again, not expressly for schools. Okay, here's Polis on his own education vision. We are interested in investing in our schools, reducing class size, paying teacher better. Uh, This will be a priority for general fund expenditures, which in what we hope the current projections show, a flush budget year, uh, we would make uh, certainly our number one priority, not just investing in our schools, but I'm not afraid to make sure that those resources reach the classroom, meaning, of course, it's up to districts at the end of the day, but we can certainly make sure that they reach the classroom in the form of smaller class size, better teacher pay, and don't go to administrative inefficiencies along the way. What has to be sacrificed in order to say this general fund revenue is going towards schools? Well, that's certainly our priority. Again, I think it's all a matter of priorities. I think that we as a society over-incarcerate. We need to do a better job dealing with issues like opioid abuse and drug abuse through the healthcare system where it's less expensive and more effective. Uh, and we can uh, represent some of those savings by investing in our schools. I'd like to talk about growth. CPR reporters have been all around the state for the last couple of months talking to people about what's on their minds. Growth certainly is on their brains these days. One of the folks we ran into is Rusha Lev of Golden. We have thousands of people coming into this state and we don't have resources for them. And that shouldn't happen in a state where we have like the lowest, you know, joblessness rate. You hear Lev's three boys in the background. Is Colorado growing too fast? So the real challenge is, is that we have to make growth work for those of us who are already here. It's great to have a growing economy. All our economic agenda will lead to more growth in Colorado. Uh, but we also need to make sure that growth actually improves our quality of life, meaning how can we make sure that we build the necessary infrastructure so traffic doesn't get worse? How do we protect our public lands, our parks, our open space? Uh, my focus will be how can we help families save more money at the end of every month, save money on childcare, save money on health care, uh, save uh, lost productivity and traffic, and really not just get by in a growing state, but thrive. So give me an example of how you take the growth that's coming and you make it, as you say, make it work for us. As we look towards building more affordable housing opportunities close to where people work, we need to do the right kind of transit planning and offer different ways of commuting and getting to the places you love. The way I view transportation is lane expansion has a very important role, and I've worked to deliver that in the Northern 25 corridor and Highway 36. But we also have to look at uh, light rail expansion, 
bike transit, uh, transit plan communities, uh, so people can live uh, on transit lines closer and get, have a way of getting to where the jobs are. Communities are strongest when people that work in communities can also afford to live in the community that they work in. And that's becoming harder and harder in many parts of our state. On the question of growth, I think a lot of people have their eyes on Denver being a finalist for Amazon's new headquarters, uh, which would bring an estimated 50,000 workers to the area. Uh, Do you want HQ2 in Colorado? You know, in many ways, this kind of crystallizes the conversation because it's everything we're talking about growth in, in a large project. So it's a question to me of, okay, in general, we want to attract jobs to Colorado, but you have to go beyond that and say, okay, where is it going to be? How will people get there? Where is the uh, affordable housing so it doesn't make housing even less attainable for those of us already here? So it's sort of a yes, but answer. Uh, of so course, yes, we want to yes, attract. you'd like Amazon. Of course, if, if we can do it in an area that we can deal with the, the roads, the housing, uh, and the growth. So it's not anywhere and anywhere that they would plop down. We want to make sure it's 50,000. You know, that really moves the bar. Where are people going to live? How are they going to, what is their commuting route to get to work? Uh, absolutely. We can accommodate that in our state. It can provide uh, revenue and jobs that can enhance all of our quality of life, but it has to be done right. Let's talk about energy and the environment. Uh, in the past, you push to increase the required distance between buildings and oil and gas development. So that space is called a setback. Uh, This year, you are opposing a ballot initiative to establish 2,500-foot setbacks statewide. Why? Well, I've always supported uh, making sure that we put health and safety first with regard to the siting of oil and gas in our state. Uh, I've supported greater setbacks subject to surface use agreements, and uh, that's one of the shortcomings of the current initiative. I've always felt that if the surface owner wants it closer, that's certainly their prerogative to do it. So what you're saying is that there's no flexibility, even if someone says, it's fine to put that close to my building. Well, this one, yeah, there's no flexibility. And we also have a goal of us achieving 100% renewable energy as a state. By 2040, this transition will create good green jobs and save Coloradans money and make us more competitive as the state. Let's uh, unpack some of what you've said there. So first to the setbacks, uh, you recently attended a meeting of an industry trade group called the Colorado Oil and Gas Association, and you were booed by protesters there for opposing this setback measure. What will you say to people uh, who think, well, this is this is not a candidate then who is going to protect my school, my house? Well, of course I will. One of those things I even said in that speech uh, is that we need to measure our school setbacks. Right now, there's what I would call a loophole in that the required setback from schools are from the school building rather than from any part of the schoolyard like the field where kids are playing or have PE. So uh, I have advocated specifically changing the state law to measure any setback from any part of the school property where the kids are and that are part of the educational program. And we took that message right to the folks in oil and gas. And there's some that agree and some that disagree there. Then this idea of 100% renewables. There are those who will say that can't be baseload power yet. That is, wind and solar depend on the wind blowing and the sun shining. Uh, What are the the technological obstacles to getting there? Have you factored that into the plan? We have, Ryan. And uh, what's exciting is when the utility providers are looking at pricing for wind and solar, they're usually looking at wind plus storage and solar plus storage. Now, uh, let's look at solar because it's a very simple example. Solar panels produce energy during the day. 
and they don't at night. Um, so if you're going to want to use some of that energy at night, you're going to need something, a lot, what we call storage, which are essentially batteries. I mean, they don't have to be a physical battery. It can be water being displaced. It can be a variety of ways of doing it. Wind is more reliable in the sense that it's not on during the day, off at night. Many of the sites that are used for wind uh, have favorable conditions for production upwards of 300 to 300 plus days a year. But that still means that you need to have wind across different sites and some additional storage. So that's that's priced into that model that shows that it saves money over coal, uh, is making sure we have that reliability through renewable energy. We're going to bounce back and forth between policy and personal in this conversation. And I figured I'd ask one thing about you people may not know. Well, I don't know. I think when you're when tell you're, me about you know, that. Shirt. How about tell me about that shirt? Well, I'm wearing a Rocky shirt today, yeah. but no, I'm, I'm certainly a baseball fan. I haven't made it to any Rockies games this year because I've been a little bit busy with my day job representing Northern Colorado in Congress and my every other moment job running for governor. Not to mention being the father of a six year old and a four year old. But look, I, I, I think uh, maybe maybe people don't know that I'm a uh, computer gamer. I play PC computer games, you know, usually in the, late in the evening, and whether it's uh, League of Legends or. Warcraft, you know, that's sort of not a not a hobby that's too unusual for uh, people of my age, but um, it's something that I certainly enjoy. And by the way, Jared Polis is 43. He currently represents Colorado's 2nd Congressional District. I asked what in his background prepares him for the executive role he'd have at the Colorado Capitol. Uh, I'll give you an example, both legislatively and then as an entrepreneur and, and nonprofit social innovator. First, we were able to build a significant bipartisan coalition around industrial hemp nationally. I uh, sponsored and passed an amendment that in the last national ag bill uh, allowed for research at our universities. And in this upcoming ag bill, we were able to get language that fully legalizes industrial hemp, which is in accordance with Colorado law. It's a great crop for farmers. Uh, we brought Republicans, Democrats, the business community on board. Another example is the schools that I started, right? So not just being a school board member, uh, State Board of Education for six years, but I actually uh, founded uh, three uh, nonprofit public charter schools here in Colorado, New America. America School in Thornton, Aurora, and Lakewood, and I served as superintendent of that public school network. So that's an inherently executive position. It's interesting because it's an inherently political position being superintendent, but it's not partisan, right? So not partisan, but political. And that really describes school board politics, which is what I came up through. So I suppose in job interview parlance, you've given us a version of what's your strength. What is your biggest leadership weakness? Well, what I want to be able to do uh, as governor is make sure that we listen to voices that often haven't been listened to across our state. That sounds like a strength. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think so. So what about a weakness? You know, uh, maybe I maybe I discount the uh, power brokers and special interests too much. I just have a lot of skepticism about the elite and the lobbyists and the power brokers. And I try I, that you sounds know, like a strength. Well, well, maybe to in, you in this does, political I, environment, you know, I, I don't know. But you know, while I listen to all sides, I probably focus on hearing the voices of regular people more. And, you know, I, I do think I'll need to work within the existing power structure to make lasting and effective change. Can you give me an example of a special interest group you're too quick to dismiss? The pharmaceutical industry. You hear me talk a lot about this during my campaign. Um, Americans are getting ripped off on prescription drugs. We're paying five to eight times as much for the exact same prescription drug as Canada and Germany. Now, of course, there's another side to that. We value having pharmaceutical research, the profit incentive, the jobs. Um, at the same time, Americans shouldn't be ripped off. Let's talk about health care, given that you've brought up the cost of pharmaceuticals. 
we heard from Gail Knapp, whose family farms cantaloupe in Rocky Ford. She was running the family farm stand when we caught up with her. My, my husband and I pay $3,300 a month for our health insurance. We're both healthy people. You've just announced a plan for health care in your first 100 days in office, should you be elected. What in that would do the most to help Gail Knapp? So, you know, Gail is right. We need immediate action to lower the costs, expand access, improve quality. Uh, there's a number of areas in that that will save Gail and her family money on health care. One is establishing reinsurance at the state level to create larger risk pools. Another yeah, explain, is, explain sure, reinsurance. Sure. No, happy to. What that basically uh, would allow uh, is it would allow a greater risk pool for some of the most severe and high-risk patients that otherwise could drive up costs within any insurance program. So it's a way of spreading risk and therefore creating greater savings for ratepayers because those risks won't, whatever plan she's on, won't drive up the cost of that particular plan. Might that, though, increase premiums for some? Uh, it should decrease premiums. That's really the reason that we're bringing it forward. Our whole goal is to uh, save families money and small businesses money in healthcare. She's probably insured through a small business if she's running a farm. Uh, prescription drugs are another one. Um, about a quarter of healthcare costs are prescription drugs. And we want to use, whether it's the, the Medicaid dollars, be able to have an interstate consortium. We have a number of ways to get there, but we want to have better negotiation for prescription drug prices and bring those more in line with what others are paying uh, in other countries. The roadmap, this, this first 100 days uh, in terms of healthcare, doesn't mention what has been a hallmark campaign proposal for you, which is a version of universal health care that you have dubbed Medicare for all. Does that remain on your agenda? And if so, what might happen in that direction in the first 100 days? I've always supported uh, Medicare for all uh, nationally. I've, I've even sponsored the bill. I think that we have a great uh, program, Medicare. Where would our country be without Medicare for our seniors? That already covers the highest risk, highest cost population. I think that we should have and we can reduce costs by having a basic level of care for everybody. It's really in stark contrast to uh, Walker Stapleton's plan to throw hundreds of thousands of Coloradans off their health care by ending the Medicaid expansion. That would also raise costs for the rest of us, because when you have a larger uninsured population, guess who's paying for them? It's you and I who are paying uh, for our insurance. So first of all, we want to protect what we have. He believes that more innovation and perhaps more choice, more flexible plans uh, might paint a a different reality. But to this idea... I'm certainly for that too. But no, specifically, I was referring to his uh, commitment to end the Medicaid expansion. Uh, obviously, we uh, I, I certainly support innovative uh, bundled payments and other mechanisms to bring down rates and use our Medicaid dollars more wisely. Has he said point blank, we're ending it in total? Yes, he said we would end the Medicaid expansion. And he's also said we would phase out the exchanges. All right, let's pause once again. Polis's Republican opponent has said, quote, it is not a question of if but when we have to get rid of the health care exchange. Walker Stapleton told us during the primary he doesn't think it's working as it should. He does not specifically call for its demise in his recent health care proposal. As for ending the Medicaid expansion, Stapleton says that's a scare tactic. But he does say while it's necessary to defend the social safety net, we must rein in costs. OK, let's roll tape again with Jared Polis and his thoughts on health care. Back to the idea of what Medicare for all would look like in your first 100 days. It doesn't appear in that roadmap. Our North Star is I support any reform from the right, the left or the center on health care 
that saves people money, expands coverage, and maintains or improves the quality of care. So we we put pen to paper and we put uh, a number of things that we can achieve towards all three of those goals within the first 100 days. Um, obviously, I won't give up until we've achieved a way to save people money and provide a universal basic level of care. But I don't think it's realistic to get that done in 100 days. I want to go back to the idea of the cooperation that will be necessary to implement your vision for the state and the cooperation specifically between Colorado and Washington. There are any number of issues in play between Colorado and the feds right now. Immigration, marijuana, environmental regulation, uh, even down to the nitty gritty of whether Grand Junction will become the headquarters of the Bureau of Land Management. Last year, you voted for a resolution to begin impeachment proceedings against the president. It only got 58 votes. The leaders of your own party opposed the move. As governor of Colorado, how would you build a relationship with the Trump administration that you have hinted, uh, and maybe even stronger than that, shouldn't be in office? Well, uh, no, no, no secret that I didn't uh, support that candidate. Uh, first of all, you know, I'm willing to take on the party leadership on either side. Um, with regard to, uh, you know, being able to work with people, look, I can work with anybody, even this president, on issues that improve the quality of life in Colorado. If President Trump is sincere about investing in infrastructure, uh, I look forward to working with him to make a, a real plan that works for, for Colorado. But at the same time, I think it's very important that Colorado doesn't have a Donald Trump yes man as governor. You have released uh, seven years of your tax returns. Uh, that was in 2008 when you first ran for Congress. And you've declined to release any more since, including in this campaign. I, I wonder if you're driving down a road President Trump paved. I mean, the man who holds the highest office in the country didn't release his taxes prior to the 2016 election and still hasn't. Well, thank goodness I released seven years because we were able to uh, refute these ridiculous charges against me that somehow I didn't pay taxes. That's completely false. And uh, my opponent, Walker Stapleton, hasn't released a single year. So uh, we would love him to match what I've released. Um, if he's willing to go above and beyond that, we would too. But uh, I don't think anybody should doubt when we see how these tax returns are weaponized by special interests and the political elite in a false way. Uh, it's no wonder that more people aren't as forthcoming as I've been. So I hear you saying that we'll do it if Walker Stapleton does it. But then I hear you saying... One reason I haven't released them is because they can be misused, misinterpreted, misconstrued. Well, again, I, I have released seven years worth. Uh, again, I would hope that Walker Stapleton would have released at least seven years, and uh, I would hope that both candidates would. You are personally very wealthy, and at this point you've donated uh, more than $18 million to your campaign. I want to say there's an initiative on the ballot that takes aim at this. If a candidate like yourself puts more than a million dollars in personal money into a campaign, as I believe also Walker Stapleton has done, yes. though uh, far less than you, others in the race would get a break. They'd be able to accept donations five times higher than what's allowed under current law. So it's a bit of a, a playing field evening. Do you support that proposal on the ballot? I'll be voting for it. On the margins, uh, I think it improves things. But I would be clear, it doesn't really change the fact that uh, it puts too much influence in the hands of the wealthy and powerful. Um, my answer would not be other wealthy people. It would be let's let uh, small donors uh, with some, you know, five to one match or, 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 or something like that. A, a kind of public financing to match those donations. That's what I've supported. Again, I, if, I, this so, is fine. There's no 
harm in this initiative. Yeah. Um, other than that, it doesn't really address the core problem in campaign finance, which is that uh, the special interests are still favored. If Colorado had that system this year where individual donations were matched by a, a pool of public financing, would you forego your own money and, and use it? Well, there that's a very hypothetical question. Well, it's, but it's pretty, well, it's pretty we would straightforward. Love, we would actually. love a system that, of course, enabled us to fund a winning campaign, which is the priority of any candidate who believes in things and wants to do great things for our state. Uh, and we are trying to do that, I would add, by the way. We, we limited donations to $100. I'm not accepting any PAC or special interest money. And I'm proud that we have over 4,000 donors to my campaign. I want to note that if you're elected, you'll be Colorado's first gay governor and its first Jewish governor. And I think there's been a lot of focus on the former and maybe not the latter. I wonder how Judaism shapes your worldview. Well, uh, happy uh, belated Happy New Year to our Jewish listeners. Uh, Yom Kippur was a rare uh, day off the campaign trail for me where uh, my my family and I attended uh, temple as we do. Uh, I would say, you know, we are a state of people of many faiths and also people of no faith. And I value an inclusive vision that appreciates everybody's contribution to the state. So I think that certainly my values are such that I will stand up for any group. And uh, certainly I would protect Coloradans of all faiths and of no faith uh, from any politician who tries to scapegoat them or attack them. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Jared Polis, Democratic candidate for Colorado governor, recorded September 21st. Hear his Republican opponent, Walker Stapleton, right here, right now, if you want, on who's going to govern. And dive further into these men's lives, what brought them to this point, in our podcast, Purplish, about Colorado's political identity. It's really good. Our music is composed by Scott Holmes, thanks to producer Michelle P. Fulcher and audio maestro Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. Thank you.